Well, welcome once again. Thank you for worshiping with us in a beautiful fall morning. I had the, I think it's a privilege, to go to the Minnesota-Wisconsin Baptist Convention on Friday and Saturday, and it was a, it was a good time together. There's 200 churches across Minnesota and Wisconsin that are in the Minnesota-Wisconsin Baptist Convention. About 25,000 people make up those churches, so it was good to see that this local expression of our church is not the only church out there preaching the gospel, being faithful to the word of God as much as we can strive to do that. And so it was an encouraging time in the sense that I got to interact with a lot of other people, a lot of different kinds of churches that are preaching the gospel, staying faithful to the word of God. Um, I'm going to share a little bit more about my time there, I think, tonight at the members meeting. So if you want to hear a little bit more about what's going on in the convention and some things pertinent to us uh, I'd invite you to come back for that. But it was a good, good, refreshing time. Thankful to be able to go. It was right here in, in Brooklyn Park in Minnesota. So that was good. Uh, one of the things that was kind of interesting is while I was there, so the, the dynamic of our state convention is such that there is a large number of non-English speaking churches in the convention. And it's really great because there are hundreds and hundreds of churches that are reaching people that you and I don't even have the ability to, for one thing, because of language barriers, cultural things. And so it was really encouraging to hear people up there speaking and then to see someone translating into their language so they could understand what was going on. And I was thinking about this in, re- in regards to our text for today. Paul is going to give us some instruction about our words and how to use our words with one another. And one of the things that sets human beings apart from everything else in God's creation is the use of language, specific language. Now, of course, there are communication styles in the animal world. There's body language and posturing and grunts and snorts and all of this kind of thing. But as human beings, we have this unique God-given ability to speak and articulate things not just in a factual way, but with emotion, with meaning behind it. And I think that God himself sets the example for how important words are when he communicates to us how? Through his word, (laughs) through his words to us. In fact, I think this element of language is so important that when we look back in the Old Testament, after the flood... Everyone in the world, it says, had the same language. And they were able to work together and accomplish things. But, as this always does, sin comes in and takes full advantage. And what happens? You remember Genesis 11, this post-flood narrative, where the people of the earth get so proud and so impressed with themselves that they decide to build a huge tower to monument their greatness. And they say, you know what, we are going to be known for this tower. This is going to be our legacy. We are going to be known as the greatest people because we came together and did this. And what happens? As a judgment for their sin and their pride, God comes down and does what? He confuses the language so they cannot communicate. That's the judgment for sin. And so I look at that account and I say, it must be very important the language that we use, the language that God gives us. And that's what we're looking at in our text today in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is going to give some very clear instruction for us as to how to use our mouth, how to talk, how to speak. 
and how not to speak. And I want to make sure that these two things go together, okay? So we're getting this instruction for how to live together. This is the moral and the ethical uh, teaching for Paul to the church. Here's how to live together in a way that honors God. But I think there's another element. It's not just a, a clean up your life kind of a list. This is for the good of the church so that the gospel will go out. A church that is committed to living in light of what the Bible tells us, to use our words in a good way, to put away all the stuff from our former life, that is the kind of environment where the gospel will flourish. And not only here among us, but to go out from us. And so don't only look at these instructions that we're going to see as, okay, this is how I can clean up my act, how I can be right before God. It is that, but it's more than that. Paul knows that what needs to happen for the gospel to be spread to all nations is that we use our language in a way that honors God, that we act and conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with the word of God. When our hearts are changed by the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, your mouth ought to follow that change. That's what Paul is getting at. He gave us the first three chapters about what God has done to redeem us from sin, to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And now, when your heart is changed, the rest of you ought to follow along. And that's what all of this instruction is in this chapter and in the following chapters. So turn with me. We're going to not quite get through the whole section. We're going to look at verses 29 and 30 today. And then we have a guest speaker with us next week. Josh Redberg's coming up from North Carolina. He's going to bring the word for us. And then we'll get back and finish chapter 4 then in two weeks. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and follow along as I read, starting in verse 29. Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we come to you now as we have every week, and we are in need. You have provided for us the solution to our greatest need in having our sin forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And now we ask again for your help. We ask, Lord, that you would apply this text to each of us in a way that is helpful and encouraging. I pray that we would see what's in your word, we would hear what you have to say, and that we would love you and serve you more and more. So thank you for your word, Lord. Teach us now from it, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul here, in this section, as I mentioned ago, is going to emphasize, I think, the importance of our words. The importance of what we say, how we communicate to one another. God has given us language for good and for encouragement. God didn't design that we would go around bad-mouthing people and, and speaking harmful words. He designed us so that we would be an encouragement, that we would be a challenge to one another, yes, but all of this done in the context of what is good and building up. And when sin, just as it always does, taints the good gifts of God, language being one of them, 
our language turns rotten or putrid. That's the word that Paul uses here in verse 29 when he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. You know what it means to corrupt? You might say about someone, well, they've been corrupted or they act in a corrupt way. Well, what it means is actually a really interesting word for Paul to use. It was the same word used in fish markets for fish that were rotten and couldn't be sold. They stunk so bad they had to be thrown out. That is corrupt. Or a flower that's totally dead, no longer beauty, no longer worth anything. It's been destroyed. It's corrupted. Okay, so that's the image Paul is painting when he says, do not let any of that kind of language come out of your mouth. That's what it means to be corrupt. Jesus used the same word in Matthew 7. He's talking about the tree that bears good fruit and bears bad fruit. You remember this in, the, in Jesus' teaching, verse 17 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, so every tree that bears good fruit is healthy, but the diseased tree... Same word, the corrupt tree bears bad fruit. So Paul says, don't let your speech be rancid. Don't let it be rotten and stinky. It's a really good warning for us. And he says, notice, let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth. In other words, do not allow this to happen. Let me ask you something. Who in your life is 100% responsible for what you say. You are, and I am, right, for me. No matter what the circumstance or situation, whether you were pressed, whether you were aggravated, whether you were sinned against, we are still responsible for what comes out of our mouth. You can't blow your lid and then blame somebody else for it. No, that was your act. That was your mouth, and we're being warned here to guard this part of our body. This is so important. We cannot blame anyone else. We need to be really aware of the power that our words have. I think a lot of times we get careless, I do, with words. And sometimes it isn't intentional. We're not trying to be degrading. We're not trying to tear somebody down. But did you really stop and think? about what you said, or is it just the overflow of what's inside? Do not allow corrupting talk to come out of your mouth. Words are a gift from God, and they are to be stewarded, used, employed, just like everything else that God has given to us. And I really believe, especially after looking at this text this week, that we are stewards of everything God gave us, and that includes our words. So how are you using your words? How do you use your speech? Maybe we don't think about words as far as stewardship, but they are a gift from God. Just like our resources, just like your life, just like your children, just like everything in your life. So my question is, how are you stewarding the gift of words? How are you using what God gave you? The Bible, specifically in the book of Proverbs, has so much to tell us about the use of words, about our mouth, about keeping guard over that part of ourselves. And I want to read for you just a few texts that I think are really going to drive Paul's point home and help us to understand this. You can write these down or just follow along as a few references. This is all from the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, 
But whoever restrains his lips is wise. Chapter 10, verse 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked knows what is perverse. Chapter 13, verse 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his own life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness is in the tongue that breaks the spirit. Chapter 16. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. 17.28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He is deemed intelligent. How do you use your words? Do you think about how to use your words or is it just everything's reactionary? If we're going to obey what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, to not allow anything corrupt to come out of our mouth, that assumes that we're actually thinking about what's coming out of our mouths and we have discernment to say, oh, that's not going to be helpful. I'm going to keep that to myself. Are you allowing corrupt talk to come out of your mouth? I think Paul uses this word corrupt. I mean, he could have used a variety of other words that describe things that are not good, that are unhelpful. But he uses the word corrupt with all of its fish-rotting implications. Because I think what he wants us to do is to develop kind of a gag reflex when we hear this kind of language. Does that make sense? So when you hear someone, whether it's off-color stories, dirty jokes, inappropriate, disrespectful language, angry language, whatever it is, we are to develop kind of a, oh, gross, that kind of reflex to that. Now, I'm not just talking about unbelievers. They, we don't hold them to the same standard as the Christian, right? They don't have the Spirit of God yet. They need to hear the gospel. They need their heart to be changed. But Paul is addressing the community of believers When he says, there ought not to be any kind of language coming out of your mouths that would be considered stinky, corrupt, unhelpful. So again, we need to ask, how are we using our words? How do we use our language? This kind of talking is characteristic of the old self. The one that Paul is getting us to put away. To do away with. And now... Before we might write ourselves a little pass here and say, well, you know, I grew out of that a long time ago. I don't, I don't tell those kind of jokes. I don't laugh at that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't engage in that. I, I, I think I'm good. Let me just ask a couple questions. Have you ever shared something with someone that really wasn't your business to share? Have you ever embellished the retelling of a story to make yourself look good or to make someone else maybe look a little worse? Have you ever engaged in unhelpful conversation specifically about somebody else? That's corrupting talk. This is is broad scale here. This is not limited to just blatantly inappropriate things. Paul is saying all of this kind of language, anything that is considered unhelpful, don't do it. Don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouth. He's trying to root these kinds of things out of the church for the good of the church. 
This isn't oppressive, top-down kind of pyramid scheme leadership. This is Paul saying, look, I know. I know that we are bent towards some of these things in our sinful nature, but I am calling you to get rid of it. Put it away. And one of the main things that Paul knows is so damaging is our words and the power that our words have. He's trying to get rid of this because he knows that when we use our words in this way, it's going to rot the church. We're going to become like that nasty old banana that sits outside and gets all brown and gross. That's not what we need to be. Let's use our words for good. So how should we do that then? Okay, we Don't let any corrupting talk, don't let any negative, tearing down, kind of inappropriate language. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? Paul gives us the answer right here in verse 29. There are three characteristics of our speech. Three characteristics of the speech of the new man. The one whose heart has been changed by the gospel. Paul says... Look at this right here in verse 29. Our words should be good for building up. They should fit the occasion. And they should give grace to those who hear. So let's explain each one of those. First, our speech should be good for building up. Or be good words that edify would be another good translation. Good is, of course, the opposite of corrupt. Right? We get this even in Jesus' language talking about the tree. He says, good tree, corrupt tree. So if we want to say, okay, what's the opposite of this? If we're supposed to stay as far away from that as we can, what do we do? Well, our words ought to be good. They ought to be things that build up and be the opposite of this corruption. Whenever you open your mouth, Christian, good things should come out. Do you know that's the call on your life from God through his word? Psalm 141, verse 3 says this, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. I don't know, if you've, have you ever prayed that? That God would be the one to guard your mouth, to keep you from saying unhelpful, hurtful things? If God himself is the watchman, the guardsman of our mouth, then what proceeds out of our mouth has to go through him in a sense, right? Are you getting that picture? Like the watchman is responsible for what comes in and out of the gate. So if God himself, in accordance to this prayer of the psalmist, is the one standing guard at your mouth, then what comes out of your mouth passes through the filter of his word, and it ought to be good because God is good. He is our standard. He's the one who tells us this is appropriate, this is not appropriate. We don't have the luxury of making up our own rules. We have the word of God. I would encourage you to pray this, that the Lord would be the one to guard your mouth so that what we say is good. Our words should be encouraging. They should be building up and spiritually helpful to those around us. If someone only had a few moments with you, just a passing conversation, what would, they, what would they get? I mean, it's one thing to think about an hour-long conversation. You can kind of dig yourself in a hole and get yourself back out of it and whatever needs to happen. But what about even just a short exchange? What is someone going to say about you after just a brief conversation? Will they be encouraged? Would they say, that was good. That was a good conversation. I'm I'm helped. No, I'm not, I'm not up here saying that I've got this thing nailed down and all you guys need to get on board. I talk a lot. I preach, I teach, I counsel, 
I do all, all this stuff with my mouth. So this is like doubly important for me. <laughs> all of my words that are heard by people ought to be good. And the same goes for you. How are you using your words? Are you spreading what is good? Will people know what you're about after even a short conversation? Will they know that you love God? That your life has been changed by the gospel? And that you care about them in a genuine way? Will they know that? Will they pick up on that? I hope so. Let's personalize this just for a second. Kids, children. When you're spending time with friends or schoolmates, sports teams, whatever it is, are you using your language to be an encouragement? Or are you maybe a little more concerned with making yourself look good or or building yourself up? Moms, ladies, when you're home with your children or you get home after a long day, are you choosing to use words that are encouraging, that will strengthen your household? Or are you done by that point? Men, are we taking opportunities as we interact with those that we can be an intentional encouragement to, whether that's someone you're meeting with, whether that's your children, whether that's the people you work with? Are you building up with your words, or is everything a teachable experience that points out what was done wrong? That's what I need to work on. Christians, as we go into the workplace... Are we engaging our coworkers in a way that is not just bellyaching about everything that everybody else thinks about, but are you using your words for good to build up and to shine the light that Jesus has put inside of you? This is not easy, and this is why I wanted to slow down on this text and spend some time here, because we need help. <laughs> we need help to do this. This is not easy. It is so much easier to just let it fly. And say whatever you want. But let me tell you, the kind of mouth that honors the Lord is the one that has God himself as the gatekeeper. That dictates to you what you ought to say, how you ought to react, all of those kinds of things. And we need that help. Second thing, second characteristic of our speech. Our speech should fit the need should fit the need. Maybe your translation says according to the need of the moment or what is good for necessary edification. Those are all good ways to think about this. I think the point here is that there are times to say something and there are times to not say something. (laughs) I know that's earth shattering, but bear with me. Not every situation you and I find ourselves in requires that we spread our wealth of knowledge to everybody, right? Not every situation is tailor-made for your unique experience. Your unique, some things are, and we ought to take advantage of that. But does what you say fit the need? Is it appropriate for the context? That's, that's another way to think about what Paul's saying here. Is it appropriate to the context? This can be hard, because oftentimes we get to thinking that we, we kind of know a little bit about everything and we have something to add to this and we ought to say it. But, but just stop. Before you engage in that, ask yourself, is this something good? Is this going to help the situation? Is this going to pour gas on the fire? Is this going to be something that is ultimately encouraging and helpful? Does, does it even make sense or am I just trying to kind of build myself up by, by what I say? Does your word fit the occasion? 
John MacArthur tells this story about when he was a young, young kid and he had some juicy bit of information about one of his siblings or uh, someone he was playing with and he runs to his mom and he goes, Mom, you're never going to believe I've got it. And she goes, wait a minute, is this necessary? And he says, well, it's interesting. <laughs> okay, that, and this is a good illustration because sometimes we're like, ooh, this is great. But you have to stop and think, is this necessary? Is this going to help the situation? And oftentimes, I think we would probably say, maybe not. And maybe, I'm not trying to get you to just be the kind of people that sit around and never say anything. You, you know that is not the case. But the words and the way we use our words are so important that the Bible gives all of this instruction as to how to think about this. I think on the, so that, that would be like the negative side, right? Know when not to say something. But I think appropriate to the situation also means that we need to know when to say something. How often have you been encouraged by something somebody else did and you think to yourself, man, that was great. Well, did you tell them? <laughs> did, did you verbalize your appreciation or your thanks for whatever gesture or act that they had done? I've been in a church context in the past, where giving a compliment was almost like taboo because you didn't want to puff anybody up. You don't want them to get proud of what they did. But let me tell you something. If I'm doing my job as a preacher and you're doing your job as hearers, then we should all understand that it is the grace of God that gives us everything that we have. Therefore, if you do a thing, if you act in a way that is an encouragement to somebody else, it is not you who gets the credit for that. It is God. So to go to somebody else and say, man, I really appreciated what you did. Praise God for that. That's not going to puff that person up if we have an understanding of God's grace. It's going to be an encouragement to them to keep doing the good thing that God has called them to do. So I just want to tell you, don't sit on your encouragement. Let it out. Let her rip. Get it out there. It's so good for the body of Christ to be vocal about our appreciation and our love for one another. And I'm not talking about buttering somebody up and being like, oh, you're the greatest person that's ever brought a casserole to our house and I just really appreciate what's going on. No, but you know what I mean, right? Be free with that kind of encouragement to one another. It will be for the good of our church and it honors God. So don't hold that in. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in 1 Peter 4. In 1 Peter 4, verse 11, he's, he's talking about using our gifts and serving in the context of the church and all this stuff. 4.11, he says this, Whoever serves, serve as one who serves in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So if you're hanging on to those compliments and going, oh, I don't want anyone to get puffed up, lay it aside. Go to that person and say, I'm really thankful to God for you because what they're doing is honoring God by using their gift. They're not going to get puffed up and if they do, we can deal with that later. But be an encouragement. Know when it's appropriate. Know when the context is right. That's what Paul is telling us here. Third, Third characteristic, Paul says that we are to use our speech to give grace to those who hear. Now maybe sometimes when we think of grace, we think primarily in terms of what God gives to us, as in saving grace, which we saw in the first 
half of this chapter. And in terms of that, yes, it's absolutely true. Only God can extend to us the saving grace that forgives our sins and brings us into his family and guarantees eternal life. But what about grace that would be more defined as charity or goodwill towards one another? Well, earlier in Ephesians, this is earlier in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So all of us have been given this stewardship of grace, and it's our job now, Paul is saying primarily through our words, to pass that grace on to one another, to extend that same kind of grace that God has extended to us. And I think this phrase at the end of verse 29, to give grace, could also be interpreted as impart a blessing. Be a blessing to those around you through your speech. Now, although talking is primarily what Paul has on his mind in this verse, in verse 29, and that's the primary way that he sees this happening, I want to just apply this to a couple other areas and ways that you and I as Christians can extend grace to one another. Okay, and I think we can do this by not only what we say, but we need to put our actions in to match what we say. We've talked about that a lot in James with the exhortations over these past months. We need to match our conduct with our words. So if we are to extend grace with our words, to give grace to those who hear, then what are some things that could practically come alongside that kind of speech? Well, I think things like praying with and for other Christians. Praying for other people. Pray with them in person. It's one thing to say, I'm going to pray with you about that. I'm going to pray for you. Why don't you just stop and do it? Stop and do it right there. Be an encouragement. Share grace with that person. Come alongside someone who's hurt or stuck. And I think employing the previous principle that we just read, sometimes extending grace means not saying anything. Sometimes it's just being there, being available, being reliable to the people in your life. It could be acts of kindness, generosity. The call of the Christian, the whole life of the Christian, ought to be marked by grace. Paul points out that this does not exclude the area of our language. We ought to extend grace to those around us. So let's use our speech and our actions to give grace to those that we have been put in the path of. Now, verse 30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. There's no small amount of discussion as to what's going on in this verse, but I agree with the majority of the commentators in saying that we shouldn't view this as a standalone, just kind of random command in the list of Paul's things. I think the the word and connects this back to verse 29, and we should see this in connection to the previous verse. I think Paul is adding weight to what he has just said about how we use our speech, how we use our tongue, by telling his readers that when we use our speech for harm, when we use and engage in this kind of corrupting, foolish talk, it's not only damaging to the church, to our human relationships, but it grieves the heart of God when we conduct ourselves in this way. Paul is probably thinking back to Isaiah 
In what Isaiah wrote in chapter 63, he has just recounted the mercy of God in rescuing his people from slavery, from becoming their savior, and for giving them everything they need, and protecting them. And then in verse 10 of Isaiah 63, we read this, but the people of Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit of God. When the people of God act in ways that are contrary or against what we know to be true, when we act in ways that are more closely aligned with the old man than we do with the regenerate man, it grieves the heart of God. When we go against God's will, it's not insignificant. There are consequences to that kind of action. Every, every parent knows this feeling. You pour everything you have into your kids. You love them, you nurture them, you care for them, and they make decisions that are totally against what you wanted. You know what grief means. That's what happens when in our sin we choose sin rather than the goodness of God. It grieves him. It saddens him. I think something really important to point out is that even though Paul is warning these Christians against this kind of talk, this kind of speech, this kind of action that would grieve the heart of God, he's warning them, he does not threaten them with losing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He does not say, if you act this way, you're done, you're out, Spirit's gone. That's not what he says at all. Rather, he tells them that this spirit is the one who has sealed them for the day of redemption. Why do you think he says that right here? Right here, why? Why Why would Paul bring this up in the context of speech and, and the sin that it is to use our words? You know what it is? It is a reminder of the faithfulness of God through the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. In the old covenant... The Holy Spirit did not indwell a person like it does now. It was not a total, permanent residency. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and what we're going to celebrate at the table in just a few moments, the new covenant offers absolute guarantee of eternal life through the Spirit. So Paul is telling them, be careful. This grieves the heart of God when you act this way. He does not say, but if you keep going, you're out, sorry. Even in his warning, he is providing them and us with a comfort. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you have turned from the old way of living. There is nothing that can separate you from that security in Christ. The Spirit is ours. It's like Martin Luther in a mighty fortress. The Spirit and the gifts are ours. <laughs> what an amazing promise. And I think what Paul is getting at here is when we, when we depart uh, from what God has told us to do and we act in these ways that are really self-serving and self-seeking, when it saddens the heart of God, we are intentionally doing this okay I say intentionally because now that we've read verse 29 
and you've heard me babble about it for a few minutes, you know what God expects from you as far as your speech. I know now what God expects. So when we go against this, when we use our speech for ill, for bad, for tearing down, for whatever it might be, that is intentionally going against what God has said. So there is no longer any excuse of ignorance for everybody in the hearing of my voice. You know what God requires. And to go against that would be to sadden him, to grieve the heart of God. And why would you do that? With all that God has done for you. <laughs> you say, well, actually, my life's kind of rotten. I don't really... No, 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 no. That, that's not a good road to go down. God has done everything for you. And to take his good commandment and to say, hmm, I don't think so. It grieves him. It grieves his heart. So how, how do we proceed? What are we to do? I mean, in addition to just obeying the text, but how do we obey this kind of text? We've been saying, as we've been working through this section, that all of this obedience, all the things that God is calling us to, are only possible through the Holy Spirit's work. Which is another reason why I think Paul says it this way, that he reaffirms that the Spirit will be with us till the end, because he knows that the only hope we have of being obedient is by the work of the Spirit. So what do we do? How do we put this all together? I want to read from Galatians chapter 5. And I think this really summarizes what Paul has been driving at with these moral and ethical commands. How do we walk worthy of this kind of call? Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you to doing the things you want to do. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. You want to have any hope of, of doing this? Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with Him. Understand what God expects from you. I can't stand up here and tell you every single thing you ought to do and ought not to do, but I can call you to walk with the Spirit. I can't give you this exhaustive list tailor-made to your life and say, okay, David, here's 40 things that you should do and 36 things that you better never do. I can't do that, but... I can stand up here and from the word of God call you to know what the Bible says about how you're to conduct yourself as a child of God. And the Holy Spirit of God applies those words to each of our hearts in different ways, maybe some similarities, but that's the beauty of the work of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, when the Spirit comes, he will take what is mine and apply it to you. What is Jesus? What belongs to Jesus that should be applied to us? It's his word. That's what he's talking about. So the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and applies the word to us. Therefore, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what hope do we have of obedience? None. Except that God does the work through his Spirit. So pray for that. 
Pray that we would use our words and our actions in a way that honors God, that no corrupting talk would come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion and gives grace to those who hear. God, make it so in our church. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you'd come now and apply this text. Help us, Father, to know your will for us, to know what you expect from us in your word, but that wouldn't be burdensome, Lord, that we would understand that not only have you given us requirements and and commands, but you've also graciously given us your spirit that empowers us to live a life that's pleasing to you. So please come and do this work among us, Lord. Change us, starting with our heart. Align our will to yours, and then would the rest of our existence, the rest of our body follow. Be the one who sets a watch over our mouth, Lord. Help us to use our speech in a way that honors you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.